Welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJC and Press. I'm super excited for our inaugural episode that we have the illustrious Dr. Reagan Bailey. And as part of this podcast series, I've decided I'm going to let the guests introduce themselves. And if they're a little too humble, I will brag for them. But Dr. Bailey, can you describe your you know, all your accolades to us? <laughs> Well, first of all, it's just great to be involved with this. And I think that this is going to be a great communication channel for ASN. And I'm so happy to be the first guest and to be here with you today, Kevin. So I am a professor of nutrition science at Purdue University. And prior to that, I was a nutritional epidemiologist at the Office of Dietary Supplements. And I got to the ODS by way of doing a postdoctoral fellowship there. So I was a postdoc, and then I stayed on to be a staff scientist. And about five years ago, Connie Weaver recruited me to Purdue to join the nutrition department, where I've continued to do a lot of the same type of research I was doing at NIH, but now have uh, some other exciting opportunities to work on in terms of research and as well as classroom teaching. Hey, folks, I got to interrupt for just one second as we uh, introduce Dr. Bailey. We over at the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition editorial board just wanted to extend our heartfelt congratulations and excitement that uh, Dr. Bailey was just elected to the National Academy of Medicine. She was one of the 100 new members that was elected this cycle in recognition of her work in measuring nutritional status to optimize health and uh, to improve dietary assessment methodologies. And we're so happy to have Reagan on as our first guest. We knew that she was an amazing first guest to bring on. And now the National Academy of Medicine has recognized that. So Dr. Bailey, congratulations. I hope everybody listening extends a a warm and, and heartfelt congrats to her as well. You can find her socials in the podcast description. So make sure to drop her a follow and uh, let her know how proud we are to have another awesome nutrition scientist on the in the National Academies. Awesome. And uh, Reagan did not mention it, but she was just on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Um, maybe a little bit of PTSD there prevented her from talking about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that was and then, a wonderful experience. Uh, really <laughs> No, I, I I did talk to Reagan during the time that she was on it, and she she genuinely did seem to enjoy her time, even though that's a ton of work and it's a huge accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Um, and then Reagan, where did you do your doctoral work? And you're also an RD. Where did you do that? Yeah, so I did um, my PhD in nutrition science at Penn State University. But prior to that, I did a combined dietetic internship and master's at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is very confusing to people in the state of Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Where you now work. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, that's a great career trajectory. So how did your career take you to the paper that we're going to talk about today? So Reagan just was the first author on a publication titled High Folic Acid or Folate Combined with Low Vitamin B12 Status. Potential but inconsistent association with cognitive function in a nationally representative cross-sectional sample of U.S. older adults participating in the NHANES. 
That rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? I know. I think I was like <laughs> trying to come up with an acronym and I was like, <laughs> declarative titles are good when you're scanning the literature, but they are a mouthful. There. So um, I mentioned that I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Office of Dietary Supplements, and it was there that I began doing data analysis with the NHANES, uh, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And I was a postdoctoral fellow under Mary Frances Pachano, and she had a love affair with folate. And I was really not in the field of folate or one carbon metabolism prior to working with her. But we addressed a number of questions related to folate and one carbon metabolism uh, using the NHANES data. And that's what brought us to this paper. Um, so by way of background, there are two important Marthas. There's Martha Claire Morris and Martha S. Morris. These are two women who have the same exact name, Martha Morris, both who are studying folate and B12. And there were some really early publications on the potential interaction of having high folate and low B12. And those came from, actually one is published in AJCN, I think in 2010, but that's coming from both uh, cohort data like Framingham, that's coming from nationally representative survey data like NHANES, and then some community dwelling uh, samples in the Chicago area. So that's what really brought us kind of the constellation of what was going on in the literature and what I was working on at ODS at that time. Cool. And can you just briefly for us uh, walk us through the entire folate cycle? Just real quick. <laughs> exactly. It looks like a baseball field. Um, <laughs> two, four, six, eight, tetrahydrofolate. Oh, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> we'll cut that out. That. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been to a talk on uh, folate or one carbon metabolism where we don't throw those pathways up. But I think what's central... Yeah, a little bit of a flex. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But central to this, um, one carbon metabolism is involved with cellular methylation and nucleotide biosynthesis. And folate and B12 are cofactors in a number of different uh, metabolic reactions. And there's really no known mechanism by which this combination could particularly affect cognitive function. Um, what we have is a lot of observational data. And I think by way of background, um, folic acid fortification is one of the great public health success stories, right? We, mm -hmm. we know that it's been demonstrated to reduce the risk of neural tube defects, both, so both occurrence and reoccurrence. And that happens early in pregnancy. So we have folic acid fortification because half of U.S. pregnancies are unplanned. And so sometimes women um, don't even find out they're pregnant until the neural tube has closed. So that is a success story in that the fortification program has reduced that risk. But now concerns have shifted to potential excess of folic acid given voluntary and mandatory fortification, as well as a lot of dietary supplement use, providing higher doses of folic acid. So this is um, kind of where this paper comes into play. So we know that we have very high exposure to folic acid, um, and whether or not that is particularly detrimental when combined with low B12 status, especially for older adults. 
and cognition. Right. And we know that low B12 is related to cognitive function. That is true in clinical trials. That is true in observational data. We know that. The, the real unknown is whether that low B12 combined with high folic acid is, is making it worse or if it is somehow exacerbating that low B12 status. Got you. And then so in the paper, you guys are looking at both folic acid, like the unmetabolized fraction that's circulating, and then the total amounts of folate too, because there's this ongoing debate about whether it's something unique to folic acid or if it's uh, just a folate-specific effect, right? Yeah. So it's not even just all the different forms of folate, but it's what are the cut points that are used. So what is high folate? That's never been defined. And it tends to be defined like with a percentile of a population distribution, or actually in most papers, it's an arbitrary value. So 45.3 nanomoles per liter for serum folate was actually the highest concentration that an old analytical method could could read. So that was why that cut point was used. So there's really no rhyme or reason or consistency of what high folate is. So in this paper, we we really wanted to look at is there something special about unmetabolized folic acid? Is that consistent with serum folate? Is that consistent with red blood cell folate? And we even looked at 5-methyl uh, circulating form. And, you know, it, at the end of the day, it really depended on the cut point and the biomarker and the test. So. Yeah, so we have talked a lot about the exposure so far of, of B12 and folate, but what are the cognitive outcomes that you guys are looking at? So one of the things that um, is was limited in the literature is that most of the previous publications had one or two tests of cognitive function. And when I was at ODS, we worked with uh, the National Center for Health Statistics to increase the number of tests of cognitive function. So literally, this was 10 years ago. I remember sitting around the table trying to get more cognitive function surveys into NHANES. And so this is kind of... uh, really exciting for me because cognitive function is very, very, very hard to measure. It's it's so representative of so many different aspects, um, like memory and processing speed. So in terms of outcomes, we had four different tests that we looked at. Um, I can go through those with you. Uh, can you just generally talk about whether they're testing specific cognitive domains or more global or... Yeah, so we the animal fluency tests uh, semantic memory, and what's great about this is it doesn't rely on formal education. So formal education and cognitive impairment are really closely related, and so it asks you to name as many animals as you can in a certain amount of time. So it's you know long term retrieval, and everyone knows animals regardless of your educational attainment. Um, the digit symbol substitution test or DSST, that is what was used in the previous NHANES. That looks at attention and working memory and processing speed. And so we wanted to first use that, what was already known from previous work in NHANES, and we replicated the same findings for unmetabolized folic acid and the DSST. And then we had two of what's called the CIRAD tests. So these are tests used to identify Alzheimer's disease. And they really measure 
can you learn new information? Can you recall information and uh, recognition memory? So it, they're measuring different types of memory and processing speed. So we're we're not getting an entire complete picture of uh, one's executive function, but it, it's giving us some different areas of the brain and different sets of processes that we could examine. Great. And then so moving into the actual meat of the paper, um, for anybody listening, can you give a brief introduction to what NHANES is? Okay, so NHANES is a nationally representative sample of uh, all U.S. uh, residents. In this paper, we look specifically at older adults, but it's conducted by the CDC, the National Center for Health Statistics, and it's a complex survey design so that it, it can be weighted to reflect estimates of the entire U.S. population. NHANES collects information on diet, dietary supplement use, biomarkers, a whole host of things, but relative to nutrition, uh, those are the main things that uh, would be of interest. Cool. And then, so what approach did you guys take with the data that you had in NHANES and these outcomes? We first excluded a lot of things that we knew were related to either the exposure or the outcome, like kidney disease and and things like that. Um, We then used uh, multiple logistic regression to look at the odds of having a low score on any one of these tests. And just as I mentioned, it was very complicated on what cut point we would use for which biomarker, but there's really not a set standard for all of these tests and what score you should use. So we used what was uh, previously published by Jakob Selleb and Martha Morris and Paul Jakes, the DSST less than 34. But then we also used the 25th percentile. Um, for the other tests because there is no specific cut points. So there's there's a lot of moving parts in this paper, um, and it, it should be considered in that, you know, very exploratory kind of vein. Yeah, no, I think you guys did a great job, and um, props to the, whoever the editors were for this prior to my time on the editorial board that uh, helped with the uh, peer review on this because it really came out nicely and not overselling the results or over making you know, wild causal claims or anything, but it sets up the field for a lot of future physiological tests and feeding studies or supplementation studies and more refined outcomes. Um, so you have a lot of outcomes here. I don't think we have to, to go through all of them, um, but what were some of the ones that you think were most notable that you want listeners of the podcast to walk away with? Well, we, I think the most salient finding is that we confirmed that low B12 is related to poor cognitive function. For some tests, having that combination of low B12 and high folate was also detrimental. So this was particularly true for unmetabolized folic acid, but only when the DSST score was less than 34. Um, We also looked at that same type of interaction with serum folate. So for serum folate, having high folate and low B12 was associated with a higher risk of having a low score on the animal fluency test. Um, But not when 
the high folate was 66 nanomoles per liter. This is the value that was used in previous publications. And nothing at all when 54.3 was used. And that's consistent with um, previous publications from the SALSA study that my co-authors were involved with, uh, Josh Miller and Ralph Green. So they published a very similar analysis using a multi-ethnic cohort and found that there was no association with high folate, high serum folate, if it was 45.3, defined that way. And we also confirmed or had similar findings to that. So it really depended on what biomarker, what test, and what cut point. Awesome. Um, what about red blood cell folate? Were there differences relative to the serum folate there? So red blood cell folate we typically think of as having a bit, bit more correlated with total status uh, or longer term status than just the plasma levels. Yeah, we, there was absolutely no association for red blood cell with any of these cognitive tests. But again, we only used, there's no cut point for high red blood cell folate. So we used the 25th percentile. And so I think, you know, building on this analysis, if this were in fact true, that high folate and low B12 were specifically deleterious, we would have expected it to be reflected in red blood cell folate, right? Right. And we... Because for the neural tube defect literature, they use red blood cell folate quite often in the, in the modeling for optimal red blood cell folates to prevent NTDs at the WHO level. So when I was looking at this and saw a lot of the serum folate stuff, I, that, that stuck out to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that's certainly an area for future exploration. There hasn't been a lot done with RBC folate um, and what what is high RBC folate for cognition? Certainly for different types of cancers, um, other health outcomes. Robert Clark published, or no, I'm sorry, Cynthia Colapinto uh, published a really nice paper looking at all the various cut points for high folate with different outcomes, and we really use that as a as a goalpost. Um, you know from Debbie O'Connor's work, um, but we couldn't find very much with what to use for red blood cell folate. And talk about AJCN review, we went back and forth. Well, why? And, and we wish we knew. Again, this is not a definitive study. This is an exploratory study to see if we need to keep looking at this question or if there's any clues that we can add to this larger puzzle. So what do you think is going to be your uh, follow-up investigation of this? Well. What we would like to do, and we just, we wanted to get this paper into the literature. We haven't been able to figure out how to combine all these tests. They're all measured on different scales. We're not sure the best way to do that. We've talked about um, doing some rock curve analysis to see if there's certain tests or, you know, that could could help guide us in a certain direction. Um, We definitely don't know much about unmetabolized folic acid. I think that's one of the really um, unanswered questions that we have is, is unmetabolized folic acid, if it's in the serum, which it is in almost all Americans, is there anything that is happening as a result of that? There's, there's no known uh, kind of mechanism for why 
unmetabolized folic acid per se would be particularly dangerous. Um, there's some work from Aaron Trone's group looking at natural killer cell cytotoxicity that unmetabolized folic acid is related to that and, and might be related to certain other endpoints. But there's just a lot of work that needs to be done in this field. So definitely more biological plausibility studies, maybe in animal models or uh, in other exploratory cohorts. Yeah, there should actually be another paper published, if it's not already, um, coming out about a meeting that NIH convened on this topic. So looking at the combination of high folic acid and low B12. Um, So the proceedings from that meeting have been accepted to AJCN. And so you can see in a lot more depth all of the different areas that are being talked about relative to this combination. Oh, cool. I'll put that in the show links if it's helped. And then since, you know, we, we're here to talk about diet a little bit too, um, in your analyses, you're using serum and red blood cell levels. Uh, were these in the individuals where the folic acid was elevated, do we know what percentage contributions coming from supplement use or fortified, uh, you know, product usage? Um, so this, the prevalence of supplement use uh, is in table one and, and it was not significantly different in terms of the B12 uh, for a lot of the different groups. So I'm just trying to remember the numbers off the top of my head. Um, we would have expected to see wide differences in intake, but there, there were not um Unmetabolized folic acid occurs in people who do not use dietary supplements. That is, we we published that a long time ago. Um, but everybody in America, I think Christine Pfeiffer's latest paper is more than 99%. So everyone has unmetabolized folic acid now, but not everybody is using a dietary supplement with folic acid. So higher exposures to folic acid through supplements increases the likelihood of having it. But you can also have unmetabolized folic acid without taking dietary supplements. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, no, this is a super interesting area to, to kind of follow. As somebody who works in the, the choline field, we, we always stay adjacent to folic acid and um, some, of this, some of this issue. I mean, I've done a little bit of B12 work as well, but uh, it's something hot to follow. Any um, other conclusions or future directions you think the field should you know, you can go rogue a little bit from what you said in the paper if you have any of your own. <laughs> no, I've learned that one should never go rogue with observational data. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, you know, that's that's really been working with a great team of investigators like Johanna Dwyer and, and Jamie Gash at ODS and, and Ralph and Josh, who I mentioned. Um, and my postdoc or incoming postdoc and first PhD student is a second author on this paper, Shenyang Jun. And she just was a tremendous collaborator uh, in building these uh, statistical models with me and interpreting the data. And it's just been a really good team of investigators. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect note to start to wrap up on. It's about 23 minutes into the podcast here. Um, so I, anybody who's interested in this publication, uh, make sure you go look out for it um, in the AJCN August issue. And uh, we will uh, hopefully see Reagan again in the journal and maybe convince her to come back on for a podcast if we can. And I have Anytime. one follow-up question I'm going to ask everybody. 
What is your favorite food? It's not allowed to be healthy. Oh, well, I don't know what, you know, I don't like to even try to define the word healthy. So <laughs> I just don't say so shame almonds, on you. Please. So shame on you. No, my favorite yeah. role, my dream meal would be uh, a lobster roll, I think. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and uh, we look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a real treat. Awesome.